0: Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and
1: inspired.
2: This is World Today.
1: Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese Premier Li chiang has met with a US Chamber of Commerce delegation. What signal does it send to the business community? Apple has cancelled its electric car project after a decade of investment into the technology. What factors have contributed to this decision? Chinese Premier Li Qiang has met with a U.S. Chamber of Commerce delegation led by CEO Suzanne Clark. In Beijing, Premier Li said the economies of the two countries are highly complementary and their interests are deeply integrated. He said strengthening economic and trade cooperation is beneficial to both countries. He said U.S. companies are welcome to continue investing in China and deepening their presence in the Chinese market. Clark said a decoupling between the U.S. and China is not a viable option, and China's further opening up is welcome. He said the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is willing to act as a bridge and make efforts to deepen cooperation. For more, we are joined by Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. What do you make of the timing of this meeting and what signal does it send to the business community?
3: We know the Chamber of Commerce in the United States is a very important intermediary associations trying to connect in different sectors and companies in United States so i think that they choose this time is uh, have a lot of preparation because it's uh, really are two areas the first one is that china is going to have the two sessions so in each year the two sessions are sending some kind of signals to the world about how china will develop in the coming one year. And the second is that we know the United States is under the election. So many of the new situation will happen. So it's really important for two sides. I mean, not only from the both governments, but also from the market and governments to communicate about the situation and trying to find out what kind of the barriers they can try to address and maybe there are some potential ways that they can develop and explore.
1: Yeah, and and Premier Li mentioned that um, the economies of China and the U.S. are highly complementary with deeply integrated interests. Can you elaborate on what he means by this?
3: Yeah, I think it's a fact because no matter what is happening between these two countries, the market is still there, the industries are still there, and there are so many things that two countries are depending on each other. So we know that China and the United States are the number one and the number two economies in the world. I don't think that will change in the coming few years. Maybe it's a kind of, you know, trend that we have to consider about what we can do for both sides like China is really good at manufacturing and we have provided so many uh, products of the semi products and also some of the raw materials to United States well US is a provider of the agricultural products including the soybeans and their services providers uh, have a uh, you know benefit both sides a lot. so this the interdependence are really what is the existing and i think that in the past decades the cooperation between these two countries are strengthened. I mean, from the market view, they are really trying to make a better use of the resources and the benefit from the development in the two two countries and also by the better international cooperation in this regard.
1: Well, Lee criticized Washington's small-yard, high-fence approach to restrict economic engagement in certain high-tech sectors with China. Um, And he said any sort of decoupling will only hurt both sides and even the global development. But what do you make of the rationale behind this small-yard and high-fence strategy and also its potential consequences?
3: I think that uh, they really are afraid that China is catching up I mean by some of the politicians of United States they think that China is trying to give uh, over uh, past the United States in certain areas and these areas is United States advantages I mean not only between our two countries but in the world so they are trying to block the cooperation um, by you know some kind of uh, political or uh, policies decided by the government I don't think it's uh, a kind of uh, a very Good ideas to trying to do that because it's happened in the past in the history when the United Kingdom is trying to stop the catch up of the United States, they did that. When United States is trying to block the you know the catch up from Japan, they also did that. But these policies are having some very bad effects on the, uh, not only to block the development in that country, but also harm the U- U.S. companies themselves. So, uh, the you know, the world is still very small. And if the company is trying to make the better use of resources by better innovation, they need the support of the market. And China's market is one of the the best one, I have to say, to many of the areas, including many innovation areas. So without Chinese market, I don't think it's possible for U.S. companies to continue to invest more in this research and trying to have a better technology and the skills.
1: Uh, But to what extent do you believe China's economic growth, um, especially in the high-tech sector, has been impacted by this small-yard, high-fence approach? Uh, And do you see a widening gap between China and the U.S. in high-tech industries like artificial intelligence as a result of these policies?
3: Actually, any policies from the government are interfere with the decision of the markets. So the companies are really considering about uh, where to invest and how can they make the deal with other countries. But I need to say that uh, these policies of the United States have strengthened or speed up the development of China's high-tech industries and sectors. And there are so many more uh, focus has been, you know, giving to Chinese market. As a sequence, you may find that a lot of uh, Chinese local providers like Huawei and other companies are developing even quicker. And some of them are trying to do something that maybe they are not, they were not so capable of. So now they are strengthening their abilities to develop that better technology. But it is true that maybe with the interference, many of the sectors that Chinese companies or markets cannot just act like before. So they need to find some alternative way, and that is you know a kind of trend that maybe we see the future. There will be differences on the standards and priorities in the artificial intelligence and high-tech uh, sectors, as you mentioned, and that is definitely not good for the world because uh, because these two countries are really important to communicate with other countries without enough uh, and uh, you know identical ways. There may be a lot of costs and the waste, and even sometimes there may be the conflicts in the future.
1: Yeah, and and primarily emphasized China's commitment to high-quality development and further opening up. How important are these commitments and what potential opportunities do they present for foreign businesses seeking to engage with the Chinese market?
3: Chinese com- commitments is very firm. So we have sent that signals uh, maybe in the past few years that we will not change our commitments. I think that Premier Li's uh, you know, uh, his message is also a real important one, especially for this year. When we are looking at China's development, maybe the speed of many of the indicators are not as quick as the past, but uh, they are providing more room. Because in the world, many of the companies are uh, from different countries are catching up. They are trying to have a better position in the global value chains. So we were not trying to, you know, occupy just uh, statically in the ways that we were. We are trying to explore better or different ways, like for the innovation, like the from green development and digital economy. I do believe these commitments are creating a better and uh, more stable or uh, bigger a market for the companies. So a lot of uh, foreign investors, including those investors from the United States, they are really capable of doing many of these areas. So the development in Chinese market are providing their real potentials for cooperation.
1: Well, what do you make of the role of non-governmental organizations and business communities like the U.S. Chamber of Commerce in bridging communication gaps and promoting mutual understanding between China and the U.S.?
3: Yeah, the bridge is a very important uh, word to describe their function. Their bridge is not only, uh, you know, uh, between the government and the market but also in the market. We know that the chamber, U.S. Chamber of Commerce, they are really a big one, they covering many sectors and connecting the big companies and the sports stakeholders. So they're not only the representation of the U.S. local companies, they're also the representation of many of the investors around the world who have invested in the United States. So actually, uh, we know that both countries are really big, uh, China and the United States. We have so many different areas and maybe varieties are happening everywhere. So I think that they can send some signals, uh, maybe some feedback from the market and also trying to explain the policies and situations in China. That's really uh, what we are expecting them to have. So if you are looking at that uh, you know, uh, so many uh, conferences and meetings are held uh, because they are visit, they are are able to look at what China has become, you know, after several years of growing, and many of the new areas are sending some messages to U.S. companies that you can come here. There are opportunities.
1: Yeah, but given the recent geopolitical challenges, do you believe economic and trade ties uh, will remain the foundational cornerstone of bilateral relations?
3: Yeah, when we lo- review the past, we know that although maybe there are some interference uh, from the policies, but the market is the most important and decisive uh, function in the you know cooperation between the countries. I believe that the market is uh, trying to say uh, as itself. So I still believe that the complementary uh, you know advantages of both sides of the markets are really providing a very strong basis for the cooperation between these two countries, and there are more things. That that uh, both countries can do we are not only trying to deal with the problems of ourselves only so we are able to provide solutions for the world and how can we transfer from the traditional ways to the green development and how can we deal with the new uh, rules about the artificial intelligence and others in technological development that's a really threat not only to you know to our two countries, but also to the world. So we can still trying to provide better and uh, more room. As the presidency has mentioned, the Pacific is big, big enough for hold the development of both sides. I, I still believe that is
4: true.
1: Yeah, and actually, according to a latest report by the American Chamber of Commerce in South China, despite the ongoing trade tensions between China and the US, 86% of foreign companies say they won't decouple from China. What do you think is behind such kind of um, positive sentiment?
3: Uh, actually, they are uh, sending a very uh, collectively signals about the decisions of the U.S. companies because uh, China is so special and it's uh, vast, so it's uh, developing and open. So I think that with these characteristics, the uh, U.S. companies really want to get better position in China instead of just leaving that because they are really are you know uh, market based. They need sustainable development based on the sustainable profits, and China is really providing them with these opportunities.
1: Yeah, but as you mentioned earlier, um, this year is uh, the election year of the U.S. So how do you foresee U.S. domestic politics potentially impacting the dynamics of China-U.S. relations and especially the trade relations?
3: Yeah, you, you are right that the politicians are really uh, trying to making some noises in the election years, and that is uh, uh, not very good for the companies decisions and the investment. But in my understanding that many of the companies of the United States are really getting the position of themselves. They know what to do. They are not just uh, trying to judge the situation by the short term of one year or less. They are trying to look at it with uh, longer terms, maybe three or five years. So in this regard, I still believe that the potentials of the cooperation between the markets are really high. And China is also trying to uh, design, providing a better protectionism, regulations for those new areas. That is what uh, U.S. companies are really depending on.
1: This is Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with the Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Jia Apple has reportedly canceled its plans to build electric vehicles as it pivots to focus on artificial intelligence. Apple kicked off Project Titan 10 years ago with the aim of building a product that competes with the like of Tesla and Rivian. The plan was never officially confirmed by the company. The project is estimated to have cost billions of dollars, with around 2,000 employees working on it. Some of them will be moved to work on AI products, while many others are expected to be laid off. Demand for EVs has slowed in recent months. U.S. motor industry giants Ford and General Motors have both postponed plans to expand EV production. For more, we are now joined on the line by Anna Tangen, Senior Research Fellow with Taihe Institute. Einar, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. So what factors do you believe have contributed to Apple's decision to abandon its EV product?
5: Well, quite frankly, I mean, uh, this is something where uh, the founders of Apple, uh, Steve Jobs, would be returning in his grave. I mean, this this is a project which has been a long time in the making, and yet uh, they made no progress at different times. They were considering uh, situations where they wouldn't have pedals or, or a, a steering wheel. Of course, that wasn't uh, very practical, but it, it shows how you can take a company that has uh, real strengths in other areas uh unfortunately they're not able to produce when it comes to other uh, uh other things. You know, if you look at Apple, they have not been able to produce anything outside their phones and iPads and um uh, you know in work uh tablets and and uh workstations. Um so we'll have to see. I mean yeah well they did have a earbuds and things like this, but they just uh the car situation was not the same and they have not been able to produce. Billions of dollars have been spent And a lot of the 2,000 employees are unfortunately going, uh, some of them are not going to be able to transition to AI. It's not the same thing.
1: Yeah. And, you know, some say that the cancellation of this uh, project Titan underscores Apple's challenges in developing new products post Steve Jobs. I mean, how do you perceive this viewpoint and what lessons do you think can be drawn from this, the failure of this ambitious project?
5: Well, you know, you know, there's so many ways you can look at this. I mean, There's this issue about, you know, founders, entrepreneurs, people with vision, and they um, are very dedicated to things. I mean, Steve Jobs is not anybody that I would want to ever have worked for. But on the other hand, he was, uh, you know, he had this incredible laser vision on excellence. And he would drive people, regardless of the cost to them and their lives, uh, to, you know, to literally produce what he thought was a good product. Um, he didn't have a lot of uh, interest in you know these kind of pie in the sky follow the rest of people type of thing. So you know when you lose uh, an entrepreneur like that and you start going in more in a corporate uh, direction, yes, you you do. You get a tremendous um, you know things are more organized. You can you know have economies of scale. Things uh, things can go much more in a corporate manner, but you lose that kind of vision and uh, focus that uh, you had before. And this is a perfect example of it. And um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people are going to say, well, I guess Apple is going to be restricted uh, basically to phones and computers uh, and peripherals and things like that. Uh, And that's the real takeaway here. Uh, It was supposed to be the big project. It's a hot thing. Uh, They can say they're going into AI, but so is everybody else.
1: Yeah, you know, Elon Musk has also commented on Apple's decision, and he said the natural state of a car company is dead. What do you make of this statement, and how does it reflect on um, these broader challenges uh, facing the EV industry nowadays?
5: Well, I mean, uh, Elon Musk is, uh, you know, he's he's an entrepreneur. He's he's somebody who's willing to take massive risks, go into areas, everything from space to these microsatellites to putting chips in people's heads and uh, electric cars and things like that. So when he's talking, um, he's talking from a a perspective, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial perspective. Um, And, you know, the the fact is Apple is no longer an entrepreneurial uh, company. It's a big behemoth. It's like, um, you know, General Motors and all these other entities and that they, they move very, very slowly. And... You know, while I agree with uh, Elon to a certain degree, um, he hasn't exactly uh, covered himself in roses uh, with a lot of his moves, especially with X and the, you know, Twitter or whatever you want to call it nowadays, um, and, you know, a lot of things that he's done. So there are always pluses and minuses to each side. Uh, from an investor point of view, you, you, you kind of want to weigh where the sweet spot is between the entrepreneurial excellence. And then the, you know, the corporate uh, side, which can, you know, uh, start making a lot of more money from that excellence. Uh, it's always, uh, you know, how, how are you going to uh, judge this company? But, it you know, hindsight is always 2020, 20, 20 and, and right now, uh, I think there are a lot of judgments about the future of Apple uh, will be made.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, this comes at a time when uh, the EV industry is facing challenges, such as slowing sales growth and increased competition. Uh, but do you think Apple's decision is going to have an impact on the overall trajectory of the EV and autonomous vehicle market?
5: No, not really. I mean, they were um, really a serious player. They're trying to do self-driving. Um, they thought, well, we're, we're good at computers and therefore, you know, the car can just follow along behind that. Um, they were... They made some industry hires, um, but you know, the, the the ideas get lost when you have an entity of that size. You know, becomes very bureaucratic. Uh, There's a lot of infighting that was going on about you know the direction. You know, people said I want to go this way and that way, but there wasn't anybody who was sitting on top of it and saying no. Here, here's the vision. I want you to follow it. And that's what Steve Jobs had. He was not a great programmer. He uh, you know, he, he didn't have a lot of things, but he did have dedication to having form factors and uh, the ability to produce sort of kind of laser like uh, things. Um, as I said, I wouldn't want to work for him, but it certainly I would have invested in him.
1: Yeah, but do you think established tech companies like Apple have a fundamental disadvantage in entering the traditional car manufacturing space compared to established car makers?
5: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, people just assume that, you know, it's easy, you know, I just, you know, put four wheels and a battery and a motor and, you know, uh, do some stuff and it's all in the in the computers because it's self-driving. That's not true. Uh, There is, you know, uh, traditional car companies have uh, the ability, uh, you know, developed over generations to understand their clients and be very, very motivated in terms of satisfying them. Um, when you're going from a phone to a car, it's not the same thing. <laughs> you don't have four seats. And things. think the, the, the ideas behind it, what people value, is very, very different. And, and that's unfortunately what happens in a lot of industries. They just assume uh, my success in this industry will translate into success in another industry. And that is just simply not true, as, as we can see. Also, you know, the, the new ideas don't come out of big entities. They tend to come out of, you know, these kind of divisions, um, you know, like Steve Jobs, uh, guys who start off in garages and have a dream and an understanding of what they're doing. And they're the ones who are adding to the industry. Uh, they either get bought up or they, you know, like um, Elon Musk, become very big. Um, <clears throat> but those were the new ideas are coming from. Not, not you know, when's the last big thing that GM ever did or, or Chrysler It's owned by Yes. Another country. Yeah, I mean, go ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. you know now uh, Apple says um, it wants to focus on AI, but with rivals like OpenAI, Microsoft, and Google uh, uh, making strides in generative uh, AI, what unique strengths does Apple have in this sector, and and how can it really differentiate itself from established players in this sector?
5: Well, quite frankly, they've been in AI. It's not like they're, uh, uh, you know, this is their first foray. Uh, They've been in the hunt for a while. They obviously they have a a software environment. They understand AI. uh, There, I mean, when they talk about transitioning uh, people from it, this is just space saving. Has nothing to do with the reality. It's not like because I know how to make uh, cars comfortable, I should be doing something in AI. So the people who will be moving over will be uh just those who can transition uh into natural uh positions uh, for some programmers uh, because it was uh involved self driving there were quite a few who were uh involved in ai because self driving that is a a a product of ai uh, be able to uh, differentiate and make decisions uh based on data that's available so, you know, there's, some of them will go, but the, anybody who's associated with the physical attributes of the car, the motors, the you know seats, the, all the rest of that stuff, they, they'll be probably looking for another job. But it, it, it goes to this uh, this issue. Everybody is chasing AI, AI, but where's the vision? You know, any anytime you're looking at these companies, you should be looking closely at what it is they think they can do better than anybody else. Saying I'm doing AI right now is just kind of like saying I'm going to walk down the road. So what? Uh, Everybody's doing that. What do you have to offer?
1: Thank you, Anir Tengen, Senior Fellow with Taihe Institute. Thank you for joining us. And coming up, China is sending a special envoy to conduct a new round of shuttle diplomacy on Ukraine crisis. Russia is hosting a meeting for Palestinian organizations including Hamas and Fatah. And South Korean trainee doctors have refused to return to work in defiance of a government deadline to end the strike or face legal action. You're listening to World Today, we'll be back after a short break. This is World Today. I'm Joanne. China is sending a special envoy to conduct a new round of shuttle diplomacy on seeking a political settlement for the Ukraine crisis. It comes as the Russian-Ukraine conflict enters a third year. Starting from Saturday, China's special representative on Euro-Asian affairs, Li Hui, will visit Russia, the EU headquarters in Luxembourg, Poland, Ukraine, Germany, and France. China has persistently advocated for peace, issuing a position paper last year and has had in-depth communications with different countries, including Russia and Ukraine. Beijing says its goal is to end the conflict and facilitate peace talks. For more, my colleague Ge spoke with Zhou Bo, Senior Fellow of the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University.
2: This is the second round of a shuttle policy from China. Could you please give us a brief on the outcomes or achievements of China's first round of efforts regarding the Ukraine crisis? What are specific actions has China taken in the past two years to promote peace and dialogue regarding the Ukraine crisis?
4: When you talk about the first round, I believe you are talking about uh, China's efforts exemplified in China's 12-point uh, peace plan for the war in Ukraine. For me to talk about that, I need to remind you that actually China is not the only country that has put forward yeah peace plans. There are many others, for example, like Italy, who has also put forward a four-point plan. So there are many plans. So the only question is whether this plan would work or not. But my answer is, it does not depend totally on those people who offer plans, because it depends on the warring parties, first of all, or whether they would have any genuine wish to reach, first of all, a ceasefire.
2: Now, what does China's peace plan reveal about China's stance and its role
4: considering the current state of the crisis? I think China's plan is widely welcomed. It is uh, more welcomed by Russia and uh, also, to second extent, welcomed by Ukraine. But China's plan, I believe, is... Um, a bit general in that in the beginning this is China's Chinese way of thinking you have to lay out some general principles and then you go down into details but the point is at this stage I don't believe that any country's plan could actually work because right now there is no wish for all parties that are involved who would wish to see a ceasefire when I talk about all party that do not only mean russia and ukraine but also mean united states and nato mm. so right now ukraine is complaining about short of ammunition and is asking for more military assistance from the u.s-led nato and then russia certainly is uh, having an upper hand compared with ukraine because ever since november yeah ever since um, Ukraine's counterattack failed. So Russia actually is making more efforts in the war and it looks more sustainable and its military production is becoming more and more. So I don't believe, yeah, right now, any sides would want to have a ceasefire. But of course, no war will last forever. Right now, if we look at this war, what I can say is, it seems that the, the Munich Security Conference the conclusion is right, that both sides are losers. But then, how about the eventual outcome? There are all possibilities and there are all uncertainties, including how Donald Trump might be reelected as American president. Again, I mention this because uh, he talked about in the past how if he becomes reelected, he could actually finish uh, the war in 24 hours. And that gives people a lot of imaginations. So if he can have, can have uh, this kind of a silver bullet, how does it look like? And it looks like kind of a deal that he would make with uh, President Putin. It's always my belief that this war actually uh, would not uh, be ended as a result of negotiation between Kiev and Moscow. And I believe that this actually would be a result of negotiation between Moscow and Washington. Mm -hmm. So this is a really complicated picture with no easy solution. But putting all this possibility together, I would argue probably the end game is a bit like armistice that people have already seen in Korean peninsula. I mean, this is a likelihood, but it looks to me like the biggest likelihood so far.
2: You mentioned other key players, the United States, they do not want a ceasefire at the moment. But I've noticed discussions in some American media, they are questioning China's sincerity in promoting peace negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Then what's your perspective on those doubts?
4: For the West, first of all, this is about defending the so-called value, uh, Western uh, democratic values. And for them, Russia is just a sheer invader, that's it. But if you look at uh, this issue from Russian's point of view, Russia believes that this actually is a kind of an existential threat to Russia's survival. So therefore, this is actually a war between Russia and NATO. But if you talk about uh, China, then China certainly is not uh, informed about this war and China is not supporting any sides militarily. So China's sincerity should not be doubted about at all. Instead, as I have argued in many international things, China's contribution in this war actually is a bit like air. You won't notice it until you are short of it. What kind of contribution has China made? First of all, China is not throwing wood into the fire. Just imagine if China does provide military assistance, as um, some countries would argue, then we're already in the dawn of the Third World War. But now the whole world knows clearly that China is not providing military assistance, because if you do, it won't go undiscovered. And then China has made it quite, quite clear in Europe, no use of nuclear weapons. So this, of course, is in line with China's decades-long principles of no use of nuclear weapons. But because China is considered very much close to Russia, so this kind of expression uh, is very much encouraging for even for Western countries. And this is exactly what uh, Olaf Scholz, German Chancellor said after visiting China, that even for this consensus between President Xi and him about no use of nuclear weapons in Europe, this visit is worthwhile.
2: Let's shift a bit of gear to the EU factor. Leaders of the 27 EU members sealed a deal to provide Ukraine with 50 billion euros. But we also see a strong wave of protests in the bloc against a further aid to Ukraine. Then how do you look at the contrast? How can European leaders maintain public support for Ukraine in the coming period?
4: I think this uh, is really a situation of so-called war fatigue. Because uh, on one hand, the European countries cannot afford not to provide military assistance or economic support to Ukraine, because this is something that is politically correct. At the same time, people know, and more and more people know, that uh, we cannot see the end game. And this kind of assistance has to be endless, has to be seamless. And who can provide this kind of endless and seamless support? So this kind of uh, you know controversy will definitely rise. Yeah, this is so so natural. The only question is, with uh, this war going on like this, without the end game being seen, you would see this kind of a fatigue, yeah, across the, the Atlantic Ocean, both in Washington. And the European capitals.
1: That's Zhou Bo, Senior Fellow of the Center for International Security and Strategy at Tsinghua University, speaking with Ke Anna. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Russia is hosting a meeting for Palestinian organizations, including Hamas and Fatah. The participants are discussing a pause in the fighting in Gaza and humanitarian aid, as well as cooperation among Palestinian groups. The meeting comes days after Palestinian Authority Prime Minister Mohammad Shdaya said he was resigning to allow for the formation of a broad consensus among Palestinians about political arrangements after the war in Gaza. Joining us now in the studio is my colleague Ding Hong. Thanks for joining us.
6: Hey, Zhao Ying.
1: So up until this meeting in Moscow, there had been no official communication between Hamas and Palestinian authorities since October 7th. Why do you think the two sides are willing to talk to each other now?
6: Well, I think the current situation means that they have to make some efforts to bridge their drastic differences. For the Palestinian Authority or the PA, it wants to seek the Palestinian unity. Uh, because one reality is that the PA's authority has, over the years, on one hand, been damaged by this continuous Jewish settlement building in, in terms of the occupied West Bank, but on the other hand, it is also facing a lot of popularity challenges among the average Palestinians. Hamas, by comparison, appears to be a more popular choice for these average people. So, and I think attempting to revive the PA's leadership credibility is actually one of the reasons behind the resignation of Prime Minister Mohammed Shataya. And during this recent Munich Security Conference, Shataya actually made a point that Hamas was an integral part of the Palestinian political arena. So I think for the PA, engagement with Hamas is really one way to revive its own popularity. Then, with regard to Hamas, I think Ultimately, um, Israel won't be able to entirely get rid of the militant group over there in the Gaza Strip. So talking to the PA is also in Hamas interests. Hamas would like its discussion with the PA to focus on reviving a committee of Palestinian factions so that um, ultimately Hamas can get involved in this uh, Palestinian liberation organization and then the formation of a you know, uh, civilian or technocratic governance, government. Uh, and probably Hamas would also like to see the current PA President Mohammed Abbas to step down. But of course, whether these requirements or demands can be met, that's another story.
1: And what do you make of Russia's role in hosting this inter-Palestinian dialogue?
6: Well, I think the role of Russia is pretty interesting here. Uh, Moscow has actually a record of engaging Hamas. Over the years, Hamas representatives have paid visits to Moscow, which has actually become a source of tensions between Russia and Israel. On the other hand, though, uh, Russia has overall managed to avoid letting this issue create any major diplomatic crisis in this Moscow Tel Aviv ties. I think. Um, I think uh, actually in the eyes of the Kremlin, Hamas is uh, is actually a party that Kremlin needs to deal with in, in its geopolitical maneuvering in the Middle East. And also some Israeli hostages currently held by Hamas have a dual Russian citizenship. So Russia also has a stake in terms of this issue of uh, releasing of hostages. Then... After the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, there has been some deterioration in the ties between Russia and Israel, so its dealings with Hamas are arguably a leverage uh, held by Russia to dissuade Israel from joining the Western countries in terms of slapping sanctions against the Russia or providing arms to Ukraine. That being said, Um, I think um, engaging Hamas does not necessarily mean that Moscow is pro-Hamas. It has actually refrained from taking sides in this intra-Palestinian power rivalry because a pro-Hamas position would create some uh, troubles or difficulties in terms of Russia's ties with Gulf countries like the UAE. And more importantly, I think through its diplomatic role or diplomatic efforts here, Moscow is actually in a very effective way countering a Western attempt in terms of isolating Russia in the international stage. Because Moscow could well promote a message or or a narrative that it is a defender of the Palestinian cause, which is standing in stark contrast to Washington's, you know, ironclad support for Israel.
1: Well, actually, there have been previous talks between Hamas and Fatah uh, that were hosted in Russia, Algeria, and Egypt, but they didn't succeed in brokering a lasting reconciliation deal between them. With that in mind, what do you think should be our expectation about the current talks?
6: Um, I think it's possible for the two parties to reach some Uh, general consensus, but only general level, But um, because there are really some fundamental gaps that will prove to be very, very difficult to bridge, because we are talking about some far-reaching political differences related to the peace process and national liberation strategy, as well as some detailed technical issues, for example, in terms of how to bring the the Palestinian authorities, institutions, and agencies back to the Gaza Strip. And of course, a major hurdle here is whether or not uh, to accept a two-state solution. In the meantime, this issue has also been made more complicated by different external powers holding different views regarding the future of Hamas. Because Hamas is seen as a terrorist organization by the Western governments in general, many Western powers have rejected any suggestion that Hamas should be be allowed a role in terms of the governance of Gaza after the war. There are also drastic differences actually between different Arab countries. For example, Qatar actually believes that Hamas will survive in some form, so Hamas' uh, existence cannot be denied. But this is not the sinking on the part of other Arab countries like Egypt or the UAE. And also, Although this departing PA Prime Minister has said recently that Hamas was an integral part in Palestinians' political unity, not every PA official agrees with him in this particular point. For example, PA Foreign Minister Riyad al-Maliki actually said on this past Wednesday that a technocratic government was needed without Hamas, suggesting he actually believes that Hamas understands why it should not be part of a new government. So overall, it is a very, very complex issue.
1: Yeah, but if, like you suggested, we um, perhaps should not have too high expectations about this meeting, then do you think it is, as some analysts would say, a dialogue for dialogue's sake?
6: A dialogue for dialogue's sake? Okay, that's. I think that's a more cynical way to uh, frame this issue, to talk about this issue. But really, I think the reality, in my personal view, is that any future Post-war scenario situations surrounding the Gaza Strip uh, that will return the PA to Gaza and integrate Hamas politically in the occupied West Bank would have to be based on some form of understanding between Hamas and the PA, that's for sure. So, considering the ongoing tragedy over there in Gaza, any diplomatic effort that is aimed at putting an end to the fighting and seeking a long-term political solution to the crisis should be welcomed, and certainly that would uh, include Russia's uh, Russia's diplomatic efforts here.
1: Thank you. That that was my colleague Ding Hung. and you're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Thousands of South Korean trainee doctors on mass walkouts over healthcare reforms have refused to return to work in defiance of a government deadline to end the strike or face legal action. The young doctors are protesting government plans to admit drastically more medical students to university each year. The protests have caused disruption and delays to surgeries in major hospitals. For more, we're now joined by Dr. Yang Xiyu, senior research fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. Professor Yang, thanks for joining us. Uh,
0: thank you. My pleasure.
1: So, uh, the government's proposal to increase medical school admissions aims to address the shortage of physicians in South Korea. But why do trainee doctors oppose this plan?
0: Yeah, it's a very uh, it's a good question. And uh, to my observation, there are two reasons uh, for their opposition. One uh direct reason the other indirect. For direct reason, uh the protesters, the young doctors oppose the plan simply because the increasing automation of a medical school will mean in near future the in, uh, uh the more intensified competitions among young doctors. Uh they have been already in a very uh, intensified uh, competitions among young doctors, and then uh, they will suffer a lower incomes. So that's a, uh, a direct reason. The, the other reason is, uh, they they what they require is to improve their working conditions. All young doctors are working long uh, hours than senior and uh, get lower paychecks. Uh. By, by senior. So their protests not only oppose the uh, uh, increasing of the mission, but also uh, range or requires mainly focus on uh, their working conditions and uh, welcome uh, levels.
1: Yeah, but there seems to be public support for the government's plan to increase medical school admissions. So how do you interpret the public opinion and how do you think their perception might evolve as the situation continues?
0: Well, uh, I think it's a very complicated uh, issue. Uh, on one hand, uh, some people do share their uh, um, uh, feelings uh, with the young doctors, but uh, for most of the observers and uh, citizens uh, oppose their uh, protests simply because such strikes uh, directly and severely affect uh The medical services, especially the vital services like uh, surgeries, emergencies, and uh, so on. Uh, So no matter you are patients or no patients, uh, in morality and uh, in general, uh, general people, uh, ordinary people oppose the strike uh, from the medical system because they will trigger more problems especially for the patients. That's why uh, the such uh, strikes uh, uh, triggered a very complicated rea- reactions amongst the Korean societies.
1: Yeah, and and President Yoon sung Yeol has taken a firm stance against the protesting doctors, and he emphasized the importance of maintaining healthcare services. But how do you assess the government's handling of the situation so far?
0: I think uh, so far. Uh, the situation remains under control by the government, and the government has gotten a uh, steadier uh, position uh, than the initial stage, simply because uh, most of the public uh, support the uh, government's plan. Uh, but for political calculation, I think the administration of South Korea uh, has had a very... Uh, uh, sophisticated and uh, good calculation about uh, this plan. Uh, in history, uh, you may find uh, such a plan is not something new. Uh, uh, for example, uh, president, uh, the, the current president's predecessor, the former president Moon, when he, when he was in office, uh, also launched a similar plan, including increasing the mission of the medical school, but failed because of the uh, uh, strong opposition from the young doctors and uh uh, the whole professional as, uh, uh as a whole. Uh, but at this time, uh, the government uh, take a tougher stance uh, on this issue and uh, make uh, harder measures on this issue. Uh, therefore, uh, this, the conf- uh, conflict uh, uh, is very complicated. but. But the good news for the government is the public the major public uh, support, uh, the majority of the public support the plan, so that uh, the situation remains under government control.
1: Okay. So, do you believe there is a pol- political dimension to this conflict? Um, you know, how might the upcoming parliamentary election in April influence the government's response and the doctors' protest movement?
0: Well, actually, you are touching a very critical. Uh, timeline on this issue. On the surface, this is a dispute about uh, uh, health system reform or increase or, or maintain the automation, uh, a technical issue. But uh, uh, the timing background is very political, uh, simply because you mentioned the upcoming parliamentary uh, election. Uh, up to now, the political situation for the election is not uh, Good for the ruling party. However, when the government uh, launched the uh, the plan, uh, that has uh, gained some support from the public. So the this issue, this uh, medical issue, has uh, produced very significant uh, political uh, influences. For example, uh, right weeks uh, a few weeks uh, uh, ago. Um, the government's uh, supporting uh, rating uh, was uh, pretty low, but now his uh, rating support, a uh, supporting rating is inching up simply because of this uh, plan. On one hand, the doctors uh, oppose the plan, on the other hand, the majority of the public support the plan, and uh, many of the public uh, uh, on this issue uh, began to appreciate government's government's. Uh, uh, policy. So uh, this issue is either a technical issue in the medical care system plan reform, but on the also uh, with the uh, political timeline, this issue has been politicized in Seoul.
1: Yeah, and I think as you have pointed out, this highlights the complex issue of balancing patient needs with the well-being of medical professionals. So very briefly, how do you think governments and healthcare system can strive for a more sustainable and balanced approach in the future?
0: I think that is a really, really vital question facing both the government and the public in South Korea. Now the government and the doctors dispute. The government saying, oh, the shortage of doctors, and the doctors say, no, no shortage. The the answer is not simple. Actually, there has been a structural, uh, structural shortage of doctors. For example, in so poly, um, uh, metropolitan areas, you cannot say shortage, but in many rural areas, really, uh, sharp shortages. And also, inclu- uh, uh, in in terms of income level, uh, in general, doctors, medical doctors, are pretty high. For example, uh, the senior doctor. Uh, the annual income can reach about uh, uh, nine, uh, about uh, nineteen, uh, uh, about uh, one point. Uh,
1: yeah, sorry. thank you, Dr. Yang. Unfortunately, yeah, yeah. we are running out of time, and we've been speaking to Dr. Yang Xiyu, senior research fellow with the China Institute of International Studies. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.